0: Well, we've been back and forth in Luke and John for some time in our harmony of the gospels. And I look back, I was surprised to see the last time we were in Matthew was, anyone want to guess? No? January 2020. And then at that point, uh, Brett did a little bit on Elisha, and then something happened, I can't remember what happened, a couple of marches ago. And, uh, but before that, it was November 2019 before we were last in Mark. So, it's been a long time since we've been in Matthew and Mark. It's good to be back in this, this, these beautiful gospels. I often hear people ask, what's your favorite gospel? Sometimes it's whatever, what I'm studying at that point. But I love Matthew and Mark and it's good to be back there like an old friend. Now the passages this morning deal with a difficult subject and it, the subject of divorce. And it's a painful one. The Bible doesn't necessarily answer all possible questions directly, and there's disagreement among evangelical commentators as to exactly when divorce is allowed and whether remarriage is allowed after divorce. And of course, today, divorce is a great problem, even though divorce rates are trending lower, last I checked. It may just be that's the case because fewer people are getting married at all. The world standard is if my spouse doesn't make me happy, I'm free to find someone who will. And if that does the work, I'll try again and try again, sort of a serial divorce, serial remarriage. Or other people will say, why bother with that? I can feel free to live like I'm married without all the hassles that come along with it. So that's where our world is now. People just assuming that you're going to live together before you get married or any kind of situation you want, as long as it is consensual is okay. That's not what God says at all. There's also a lot of understandable concern about same-sex marriage, but some have rightly said that that was helped because traditional marriage has itself been cheapened by easy, casual divorce. So I think if we had a stronger state of marriage in our country and the world, same-sex marriage would not be such a big issue. In any case, our passage today is Matthew 19, 1-12, and Mark 10, 1-12. Let's read that together. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who, made, who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Then Mark 10, to 12. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. But we come first to the setting. First couple of verses of each passage. Yeah, Verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Mark 10.1 says, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the jordan crowds gathered around him again and according to his custom he began or he once more began to teach them now as we've said often as we go through the harmony of the gospels it's difficult to trace jesus movements as closely as we'd like the gospels are not biographies in the same sense we would like them to be we'd love to have a timeline of exactly where jesus was and when he did things <clears throat> but it's not always easy to do that and so it could be some time between jesus departure from galilee in the first part of, say, Matthew 19:1, and the Pharisees' question on divorce in verse 3. And in the meantime, he may have gone from Galilee up north through Samaria, south down to Jerusalem, and then beyond the Jordan, as Matthew and Mark mentioned. And then he went down to Jerusalem again, as we saw a few weeks ago, to raise Lazarus. And as we bring Luke into this, another note is that from the end of Luke 9 to Luke 18, where we just left off, Luke basically goes his own way and gives a lot of details of Jesus' ministry that aren't in the other gospels. Things like commissioning of the seventy, and when he visited Mary and Martha, a number of parables like the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, the Pharisee and the publican we just did. He did some healings like the woman bent double by an evil spirit, and healed the ten lepers, but those were only in Luke. And there are also some additional confrontations with the Pharisees we have in those middle portions of Luke. So we have Matthew, Mark, for a while, then we spent a lot of time in John and Luke, back and forth, but now we're back in Matthew and Mark, as they seem to admit uh, maybe some months of Jesus' ministry between verses 1 and 2 here in Matthew 19, and then verse 3, when he's talking to the Pharisees. Now back to our text, he's east, east of the Jordan, where we call that Perea. We saw earlier in John, he was up in Perea, across the Jordan, came back down to heal Lazarus, and notice that in Matthew he is healing, and in Mark he's teaching. Um, now of course he did both, according to his custom, as Mark says, from the beginning of his ministry, back in Matthew four, it says Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So those are the two prongs, I say, of his ministry, teaching and healing. Jesus is doing that across the Jordan. We come now to the Pharisees' test. The Pharisees' test, Matthew 19, 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Mark 10, 2 says, some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. But once again, we see the Pharisees opposing and testing Jesus. There's a lot of examples I can look at, but just one from Matthew 16.1. says the Pharisees and Sadducees came up to Jesus and testing him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And later on in Matthew 22, we'll see this. The Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said. So early in Jesus' ministry, in the middle and even just before his death, The Pharisees are trying to test Jesus. And this test amounts to a question about divorce. And there were various views of divorce, we'll see in a minute. And these Pharisees want to get Jesus on the record on one side or another. And maybe they can get him to contradict Moses in the process. Another interesting thing they might have been angling for is that, remember John the Baptist earlier, Matthew 14 other places, we have Herod, who is uh, in charge of Galilee and Perea, where Jesus is at this point. And he has John arrested because he didn't like what John was saying about him and his wife Herodias. Remember, his Herodias had left Herod's brother Philip and gone to be with Herod, and John said, it is not lawful for you to have her. So there's this issue around divorce and remarriage that got John into trouble with Herod. And of course Herodias ended in his death. And so now that Jesus is still in the region where Herod has control, in fact, he might not be too far from the prison where John the Baptist was held, if the Pharisees can get Jesus to say something that will offend Herod and get him mad about his relationship with Herodias, perhaps that's one way they can get rid of Jesus as well. It doesn't say that here, but some commentators bring that up as a possible point of reference. Well, the Pharisees ask Jesus this question, and Jesus, as he generally does, answers from Scripture. Matthew 19, verses 4-6, He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Mark 10, 6-9, But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female, for it, this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and that two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now you might have noticed, I, I continued in Matthew 19, but I jumped ahead a little bit in Mark 10, because Mark's account is in a little different order. Sometimes we'll see that the gospel uh, events are not are in quite the exact same order every time we see them. So we'll jump down to verse 6 in Mark 10, and we'll jump back to verses 3 to 5 in the next section. Well, remember, the Pharisees wanted a way out. They were looking for a way out of a marriage. So they asked, could you divorce your wife for any reason at all? But Jesus redirects their focus from getting out, and rather on staying in. And he does so by going to Scripture. Jesus didn't argue his position based on what this or that great rabbi of the past had said. Uh, The the rabbis of Jesus' day tended to go back in history and say, well, this rabbi backs me up, or I agree with that rabbi. But Jesus is like Isaiah. He went to the law and to the testimony. So what the previous rabbis may have been interesting, but not really ultimately all that important. Jesus goes back to Scripture. What did God's word say? In fact, he goes here back to the very beginning, not even to the Ten Commandments or any of the, the law that was given to Moses, but to the very beginning of creation. And he says, have you not read in Matthew 19? Have you not read? It's a rebuke, isn't it? The Pharisees were proud of their knowledge of the scripture, and yet their confusion about this matter of divorce stemmed from missing something from the very earliest portion of the Bible. It says God made them male and female. Turn back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Now the Pharisees didn't have Genesis 1 as such back then. They didn't have verses and chapters back then, but... If you read much of the Old Testament at all, you get to Genesis 1.27 pretty fast. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God made them male and female compatible with one another. Remember, Adam couldn't find an animal suitable to him, comparable to him. He had to wait till he actually received the gift of the woman. And she was the one who matched him as God created her. And God also ordained that a man should leave his father and mother, as Jesus quotes. Uh, So the bond between parent and child is temporary. My children will live with me for a time, and then they go off, and they they, uh, marry their spouse and and begin their lives. But the one between husband and wife is till death. My wife doesn't just wait around until I grow up and then leave, (laughs) or I leave her. That would be a long time to wait. But, No, our our marriage is permanent until one of us dies or Jesus comes back. God has joined the husband and wife together. It says, God has joined them together. He did this. It was God's creation ordinance. From the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, God exalts marriage. Look at Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable to him, or corresponding to him, comparable to him, that would match him, that would fit him. Verse 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus goes back to Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24 to make his argument about the permanency of marriage. And I mentioned that this is true from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. Turn to the book of Malachi. Some of the very last words in the Old Testament are about this very subject. Malachi. Chapter 2. But we have, actually, verse 11 speaks at the end of, of Judah profaning the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, it's Judah was spiritually marrying a foreign god by, by engaging in false worship of other gods. So that was a spiritual adultery. But there's also a sending away of their actual Jewish wives, and taking on foreign wives. Look at verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So they want God to take their offering, but they are hypocrites. They're sinners. Yet you say, verse 14, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed into your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and with him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. So it looks like these Jewish men... We're finding younger wives from pagan lands to marry. So they would divorce their wife, send her, the wife away, and take on a newer wife. And God says, I hate divorce. I hate that you're doing that. And that's one reason why God was not answering their prayers and heeding their, their cries regarding their sacrifices. He doesn't regard the offering because of the sin of sending away their wives. So again, from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, God exalts marriage. In fact, the beginning and end of the Gospels, New Testament too, right? Jesus exalts marriage at his first miracle, recorded, the the marriage of Cana. And at the end of the book of Revelation, what do we have? The marriage of the Lamb to his bride. So marriage is all through Scripture, and it's such a big part of God's redemptive plan. And anybody who meddles with that is meddling with God's work. So Jesus says back to... Our text, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So even a lawful marriage between a man and a woman who don't care at all about God, you get a couple of rank atheists who get married, they have a union that God has joined together by his own creation decree. The marriage is not just something invented by men, but it is ordained by God. God. So when somebody divorces, they're undoing something that God has done. So someone who is trying to divorce unlawfully is fighting against God, going against what God has said. That's one commentator said, I think, fittingly. He says, your marriage does not belong to you, it is God's. Well, the Pharisees have a response to Jesus' answer from Scripture. Matthew 19, 7 and 8. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. Mark 10, 3-5. He answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted you, or permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. So the Pharisees, As I said before, no scripture, to some extent, they can use it too, but they want to use it to justify an easy way out of marriage. Let's look back at Deuteronomy twenty four. This is where Jesus is quoting, or um, the Pharisees are. Rather, Pharisees Deuteronomy twenty four, verses one to four. Deuteronomy twenty four verses one to four. This is in the context of a man who divorces his wife and then she marries another man and then it regulates that. So if she's divorced again, she can't remarry her first husband. Listen, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So again, this is not saying you must do this. This is saying, if the situation happens, if a woman is divorced, and her husband divorces her, she marries another man, and is released from that marriage somehow, She can't marry the first man. So God is regulating that situation here, not commanding divorce at all. Now, if you look at verse verse 1 of chapter 24, it says he finds some indecency in her. Now, Moses presumably knew what indecency meant exactly in his day, but historically there are different views on what this means. Now, this wouldn't mean adultery because what was the penalty for adultery? Yeah, so if you... Committed adultery, you'd be dead. So this would be something short of adultery. Now, one school of thought in Jesus' day was that indecency meant something very serious, like a severe moral defect. But the other school of thought allowed more trivial reasons, like the wife spoiling a meal, or talking too loudly, or insulting her mother-in-law. Or maybe if the husband just finds a prettier woman, he could just send the other wife away and take a new wife. By the way, in Jewish law at this time, the man had the right to divorce his wife, but women basically had no such right. So it's up to the, the men to could, could do this in the longitude, but if a woman was stuck in a difficult position, she can't just walk away. Uh, one other thing, in later Jewish law, divorce was allowed after 10 years of marriage if the couple was unable to have children. And the justification for this was that there was a command to be fruitful and multiply, and the man isn't able to fill this commandment with his wife. So if he can't be fruitful, multiply with the wife he has, he can uh, divorce that wife and take a new wife that perhaps he could multiply, uh, be fruitful, multiply with. But too often in this day of Jesus' day, it was just a matter of paperwork. You just, if you want a divorce, you give your wife a piece of paper, and that's that's it. Now we rightly complain about immorality in current movies, but it's interesting if you ever watch some older movies, like some of the 30s and 40s, some of those old black and white movies, even classics. They really treat marriage in a really shallow way as well. Very often they're just, they're about to get divorced. All they got to do is sign a piece of paper and they're done. You're really, because they want to marry somebody else. The very casual attitude toward divorce, even in movies, about uh, 60, 70, 80 or more years ago. But let me just say again, Moses doesn't, in Deuteronomy, command divorce, he regulates it. He makes it more difficult. There had to be a cause. There had to be indecency of some sort. And the woman will get protection because of the certificate of divorce as well. So she has the paperwork to say that she is indeed truly divorced. She's not just run away from her husband, but she has been uh, officially divorced by him. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted this. And John Stott said, this is a divine concession to human weakness. This is going to happen sometimes, and so God is conceding this in some cases. So he's going to regulate it. He's going to put some law around it. But again, divorce is not demanded. Now, you may have heard stories of men and women in unhappy marriages that they want to get out, but they hope their spouse will commit adultery so that they can get out. They they almost want their spouse to be unfaithful or cheat on them so they can be rid of this marriage. But God himself describes his relationship with his people Israel like a man with an unfaithful wife, and he was willing, even eager, to take her back. So even when God's people weren't faithful, God wasn't looking to cast them out forever, but God wanted to be faithful to them and, and bring them back. Hosea 3, verse 1 says this. Remember the story of Hosea? His wife, Gomer, is, is, a, is a harlot, and she has children by harlotry, and she's very unfaithful to Hosea, but Hosea will take her back. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Isn't that beautiful? He, the husband still loves her, yet she's an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Now that last part's kind of weird, isn't it? It's not something you get at, at Starbucks, a raisin cake. That sounds good. What's wrong with raisin cakes? Uh, these were cakes that were baked to other gods. They were part of pagan rituals. And so... This was a sign that they were involved in this idolatrous, spiritually adulterous worship. So the people of Israel were unfaithful to God, just as Gomer wasn't faithful to Hosea. But God wanted to bring the people of Israel back, just as Hosea wanted to bring his wife Gomer back. Hosea 3, 4 says this, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So there's a beautiful reconciliation going to happen between God and the people of Israel in the last days. So somebody who's in a difficult marriage, and it's easy to say this, it's hard to do this, but the hope is that the person who is being sinned against in this marriage, the person who's who's trying to lead a godly life in this marriage would pray for their spouse's repentance and pray for reconciliation, not pray to be released from it. To pray that their their spouse would sin so they could be let out of this marriage. But by God's grace, have God's love for that wayward, adulterous, sinful spouse. Let me just mention John Stott again. He, He wrote how he will never counsel someone regarding divorce... Until he has already spoken about marriage and reconciliation. Divorce is an absolute last resort under certain circumstances, not a first resort like it is for so many today. Jesus has a further explanation on divorce and remarriage. He says, Matthew 19 verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Mark 10. I'm also Matthew 5:32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Very similar to what he says in Matthew 19. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Now back to Mark 10, 10 to 12. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. You could also mention we saw this a few weeks ago in Luke 16, verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who was divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now the setting here is a little different. Mark 10, ten says, In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. So Mark has a change of scene that Mark or that Matthew doesn't have, and the disciples as they often did, wanted more information. What were you talking about, Jesus? Give us some more information. And in Matthew, Jesus says, I say to you, this is Jesus' authority as a prophet and the Son of God. I say to you this. Don't worry about what the Pharisees say. I say this to you based on the Word of God. Now you might notice a a difference in these passages. Matthew 19 mentions an exception except for immorality. And also Mark turns. Here's verse 11 around, and so whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman, verse 12 mentions a woman divorces a husband and marries another man. So Mark mentions this other option. Some think this may be because it, Matthew's writing mostly to Jews, and I said before Jews that the wives couldn't divorce their husbands, typically. But in Mark, he's addressing Gentiles, and that was more common among Gentiles for a woman to be able to divorce her husband. So maybe that was why Mark has both these Options in verses 11 and 12. In any case, uh, look what Matthew 5.32 says that, uh, a man who divorces his wife and makes it her commit adultery, that is, she's likely to marry again. In those days, women couldn't just get a job and support themselves most often. A woman was dependent on a man for her, 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 uh, her income t- to help take care of her and perhaps her children. And so she would want to find a husband again as soon as she can. It says here in several places, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The woman not legitimately divorced is still in God's eyes joined to her first husband so that any subsequent marriage involves adultery. If the, the marriage is not uh, on biblical grounds separated, then joining yourself to a woman who's not actually divorced is adultery. Now, there is an exception mentioned in Matthew, again, not in Mark. This word unchastity in Matthew 19, or immorality, or, or sorry, in chastity is in Matthew 5, immorality is in Matthew 19. It's the same Greek word, I'm not sure why they translate it differently. In any case, the term is used of sexual immorality in a broad sense. And again, there's disagreement as to what this actually means. Some would say this is actual adultery only, Or some would say it's some sin short of adultery. Or marrying a two-year relative, some sort of incest. Or discovering on a wedding night that the woman had been impure before her marriage. Different ideas, again, of what this means. I take it, uh, in a broader sense, to mean any kind of serious sexual sin. The kind that would, in Old Testament law, result in the death penalty. So... One thing about the death penalty for adultery is that it was not always practice. We have, we just saw the story of Hosea's wife Gomer. Her penalty under the law could have been for her to be stoned for her adultery, but she was graciously spared. There's another famous person who committed adultery who was spared from the death penalty. David, right? David and Bathsheba. David should have been killed from for his adultery. In fact, that's why he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Of course, he was also involved in the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. So God graciously allowed divorce instead of the death penalty. So you could argue, in the case of divorce due to unfaithfulness, the innocent spouse is freed as if the guilty spouse had died. Now, there's one more exception in this breaking of a marriage via divorce, and it's not mentioned in the Gospels. But it is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Let's look at that real quickly. Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. And it's more um, relevant in the church age. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. Uh, Paul here says, To the rest I say, not the Lord, that is, look, Jesus didn't mention this directly, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband... And he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified because, through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave, if the brother or the sister is, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So, we have this, situation where a man or a woman is married to an unbeliever, the unbeliever wants to stay, Paul says, stay married. You might save your wife or your husband. But if you have an unbelieving spouse who wants to leave, let them leave. It says here that God has called us to peace. So in that case, divorce is allowed. If you have a, an unbelieving spouse who wants to leave, but you don't push them out, you try to, to keep that marriage going. Now there are different views as to the precise details as I mentioned before. John Piper has a stricter view. He says, a remarriage after divorce is never legitimate until the spouse dies. And James Boyce says this, I believe that Jesus was teaching that the only justifiable ground for divorce was impurity in the woman discovered on the first night of the marriage. And then he says about 1 Corinthians 7, as we just read, it is possible the unsaved spouse will not stay with a Christian. In that case, Paul's second point of advice is to let the non-Christian go, but the Christian is thereafter to remain unmarried. Grace Community Church has this policy on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And this is my belief, by the way. The only New Testament grounds for divorce are sexual sin or desertion by an unbeliever. Remarriage is permitted for the faithful partner only when the divorce was on biblical grounds. If they were caught while divorced and cannot be reconciled to their former spouse because that spouse is an unbeliever or is remarried, they are free to either remain single or be remarried remarried to another believer. And then uh, Lloyd-Jones says this. It's much like Grace Church's. We can say not only that a person who has thus divorced his wife because of her adultery is entitled to do so. By the way, this goes for men and women. We can go further and say that the divorce has ended the marriage and that this man is now free, and as a free man, is he is entitled to remarriage. Divorce puts an end to this connection, or our Lord himself says so. His relationship to that woman is the same as if she were dead, and this innocent man is therefore entitled to remarriage. Even more than this, if he is a Christian, he is entitled to Christian remarriage. But he alone is in that position, and she is not, or vice versa. So that the, the the guilty spouse is not entitled to a remarriage, but the, the sin against spouse is. One more portion here, and this is only in Matthew. We see here the disciples' cynicism. Verses 10 to 12. Matthew 19, the disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men are can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. His disciples say, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. If you might get stuck with some woman till death do you part, maybe it's not worth the risk. Jesus here says, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. That is, it is a gift. In verse 12 here, he mentions three kinds of eunuchs. The first two are literal eunuchs, born that way, from the mother's womb, or those who are made eunuchs. We meet one of those in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch. The third group are not literal eunuchs, actually eunuchs, but they are those who live like eunuchs. They have chosen celibacy for God's sake. And again, Jesus says it's a gift to be single, but the normal thing is for a man to take a wife. In a similar context, as we, we just saw, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 7 says, uh, I wish all men were even as myself am. He's talking about himself being a single man. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter, manner and another in that. So Jesus and Paul agree. The gift of singleness is indeed a gift. But if you don't have it, that's okay. Get married. If he was able to accept this, though, let him accept it. We we know that marriage, from the beginning of the end of scriptures, marriage is said to be a great gift of God. But singleness can be a gift as well if it is used for His glory. Well, a few points of application as we wrap up. And as I said before, this is very relevant to today when so many people reject God's Word and even common sense regarding, say, maleness and femaleness. And... God's laws concerning marriage and sexuality. By the way, I mentioned same-sex marriage before. People talk about that a lot. You might have heard people say that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality again as as another point of contention. If if we preach God's word about homosexuality, same-sex relationships, people say Jesus never said anything about that. They're looking at the red letters in the Bible. Jesus never mentions that. Well, Jesus, first of all, we don't have everything he ever said, do we? So we don't know he didn't say anything about it. And he may not have said anything in the Bible directly about homosexuality, but he says it indirectly in other places by, for example, affirming the permanence of God's law in many places, but also even here in Matthew 19, Matthew 10, or Mark 10, Jesus goes back to the beginning and he says that marriage and sexuality are grounded in the differences between men and women, And more than that, they are grounded in the creation purpose of God. It's not something that we can just change ourselves in society and say that's okay. From the beginning, it was God created things in this way. And so we even know, even if we didn't have God's law in in the Ten Commandments, we could say, based on Genesis, that any sexual activity outside of marriage is forbidden by God's law and His creation ordinance. Any sexual activity Outside marriage is forbidden by God's law and His creation ordinance. We also know that God joins together a a husband and wife, doesn't He? Even as I said before, a pagan couple joined together in marriage is uh, is joined together by God. But God would never join together a same-sex relationship, would He? There's no there's no joining there. And so we can rightly say that same-sex marriage, in God's eyes, is no marriage at all. One other thing that I want to bring up in this, in this topic about addressing our society and what they're saying about marriage and sexuality, even maleness and femaleness, this verse should be emblazoned upon a lot of places around you know, maybe Hollywood, Las Vegas, uh, other other places around. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Pretty serious, isn't it? Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Maybe some college fraternities and sororities should have that emblazoned across their archways, and maybe even some of us in our hearts, across our computers. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. This is true marriage, God's marriage. between one man and one woman for life. And the marriage at bed is to be undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I have a message for Christians as well from these passages. First of all, be very careful about entering into marriage. Marriage is a serious thing. If you marry foolishly, you can't just say oops and undo it. You know the old saying, marry in haste, repent at leisure. It's true, because marriage is a permanent uh, commitment that God has given to us. And, of course, especially for Christians, marry only in the Lord. You may have counsel people that they should have that, I love this person so much that the person that God has given me, are they a Christian? No, but they're pretty close. Or, now they're a nice person. Don't marry them. Don't marry them. Don't marry them. And then you, they marry that person and very often the case is that they have a difficult marriage that may well end in divorce. Sometimes they wind up okay. But don't assume that's going to be the case. That your prospective spouse will believe in Christ just because you want them to and after marriage they'll get right with God. These commandments are in the scriptures for a reason. For God's glory and for our good. And we disobey them at our peril. We also want to say, besides being very careful about entering into marriage, once you're in marriage, make sure your marriage reflects the intention of God. We don't have a lot of time on this, but Ephesians five is a beautiful passage about this. And anybody is tempted to think that marriage is uh kind of the old ball and chain or or it's Something not to be desired or just a a drag for the rest of your days. You're just stuck with this person. Ask yourself if your marriage could be like what Jesus talks about here in Ephesians 5. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church and all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Here Paul quotes Genesis 2 again, as Jesus did. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. It's a glorious reality that Christ came to save his church, isn't it? Christ loved his bride so much he gave himself for her. And what a beautiful reflection of that reality it is, if we have husbands who love their wives as Christ loved the church and want to reflect that reality and wives also who love their husbands and respect their husbands as the church loves and respects Christ. And that's what a marriage can be and by God's grace ought to be. So we want to make sure to be diligent to do things that will strengthen and sustain your marriage. And then those, those issues and brought up here in uh, Matthew 19, Mark 10 don't really matter. Do that because we're not even considering divorce. Divorce is so far out of the possibilities, and and just love and serving Christ together as long as we both shall live. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this beautiful lesson from Christ. Even though it's hard to see divorce in our world, even in our own families, we, we all know people, loved ones who have been divorced, and it's such a horrific reality, and yet we know that you can redeem even those situations. We pray for those who are struggling in their marriages now, here or ones we know of. We pray that you would restore them, help them to see their marriage through the eyes of Christ, through your own eyes, as a binding ordinance, as a binding covenant between a man and a woman for life, and to seek to love one another, even as Christ and the church love each other. May our marriages be a reflection of all they they might be as you have created them to be. Thank you for this special grace of life, of marriage, for those who who, uh, who have entered into that special relationship. For those who are single, who are looking for spouses, we pray that you give them wisdom to marry only in the Lord, to find the right person based on your scripture, to find somebody who loves you and will serve you, and that they will be able, able to be equally yoked and not unequally yoked. And those who have the gift of singleness, give them the the diligence to use your gift for your glory. Not for their own self-indulgence, but for, their, for your glory. That they might better serve you through their single life. Whatever you've called us to do, whatever you've gifted us to be, and we do so for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.